0: Well, tonight we're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 5, and Lord willing, we'll take communion as well. I'm looking forward to that. So let's open up to 1 Kings, excuse me, chapter 5. And it's a short chapter, so I thought we would read right through it. But before we do, just to look at. What had happened uh, in Solomon's... Uh, as Solomon is beginning his reign now, the Lord is uh, fulfilling his promise. Uh, and we'll look at that a little bit later. The Lord is fulfilling his promises, not only to, to Solomon himself, but uh, fulfilling the promise to us all, in addition to his father David. And I'll explain why that is. And it's a significant promise, honestly. Uh, and this promise... And again, we will touch on this later, is the fact that God would make a promise to David that through his seed, that there would be one to sit on the throne of of his kingdom forever and ever. Now, we know right now that there's nobody sitting on the king uh, physically on the throne in Jerusalem. But there was a break, wasn't there? After the Babylonian captivity, there hasn't really been a king, in a sense, sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. But there is coming a king from the reign or from through the line of David and we know him to be Jesus Christ. And so this promise that God had given to David back in 2 Samuel 7 is a very significant one because what it does is it ties together the past, uh, past prophecies and specifically what I'm talking about is Genesis 49 verse 10 where remember when Jacob was on his deathbed that he began to prophesy over his twelve sons. And when he got to Judah, he he basically told him that the scepter would not depart from Judah, the right to rule, the king, the, 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 the line of kings would come through Judah and until Shiloh come, and he mentions the word Shiloh, which is the Messiah the Savior of the world. And so that prophecy given all the way back in Genesis 49, verse 10, now fast forward several hundreds of years, and now you're here in the midst of uh, you know, David when he was ruling and reigning and God giving to him this promise that there would not cease to be one that would sit on his throne. So the Davidic covenant, if you understand it, It brings, from the very beginning, it brings that that those prophecies from the Old Testament, the early in the Old Testament, in Genesis, brings them to the foreground and also projects further on to a yet future fulfillment, even from where we are right now. And ultimately, what I'm speaking of is when Jesus returns and sets up his throne on the thrown in Jerusalem in his millennial reign. A thousand-year reign of Christ, yet future to us now. And we know that the church will be removed, and hopefully soon. Hopefully soon. Is anybody excited about the return of Christ for the church? Yeah, what kind of... Of course you are. <laughs> we're excited. I can't wait. It's the, it's the blessed hope. It's what we've been looking forward to. It's Without the resurrection, do you understand that we are just the most miserable people because we're gathering in this place, worshiping a God that if, this, if, the, if the dead do not rise, and we looked at this a couple Sundays ago, If he doesn't rise, then we're wasting our time. If he died but didn't rise from the grave, as the scriptures have foretold, then we are wasting our time. Then we might as well just join the party down in Times Square. Seriously. Because that's the best it's going to get. And even then, it's not so great because you have to wake up the next morning. Right? So it's not so good anyway. But we've got pleasures forevermore waiting for us. And I'm so glad for that. So this Davidic covenant is central to um, the Bible. It's, it's an important doctrine. And if there's a, I would have you memorize that chapter in reference. Second Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic covenant. And I hope that you read through it. We've already been through it a number of times, but I'm going to keep referring to it because my hope is to saturate your mind With that promise, because that promise is pivotal, like I said, holding and bringing things from the past into the forefront and even going further into the future. And that, to me, is one of the most wonderful things about the Word of God, is that it does, it ties it all together. And it does so because the author of that book is the one who is outside of our time domain. A God who can see all things. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending. However you want to frame it, God is almighty God. There's no other God beside him. There's no one that he knows of. And he alone gives power on loan. And all the powers that be, all the powers that be are ordained by him. They're ordered by him. Nothing escapes his attention. Everything, he's got it under control, folks. And I don't know about you, but we Christians... And yes, I am digressing because I'm having a lot of fun with this right now. <laughs> and and it's, it's really an awesome thing to think about. But you know, you and I, we have the greatest promise. The promises of God are so rich to us. And one day it's all going to come to fruition. And, there, and I think I'm going to have to have surgery to remove the smile off my face after a billion years in glory because my, my smile is going to be so big. And yours is too. It's going to be wonderful. And be encouraged in it. It's okay to be excited. It's okay to look forward to what we have to look forward to. That's part of the gospel. It's good news. It's good news. And so this passage that we were looking at is important because now Solomon is coming into his kingdom and into his reign and just as God had promised David, saying, Upon your throne there shall not you know, fail a son to sit on your throne. And your, your throne is an everlasting uh, dominion. He, he says that three, at least three times in that chapter. It is an everlasting thing. It's something that God is going to do, even though David had messed up, even though Solomon later in his life is going to mess up, even still, in spite of all that, God is going to make sure that his unconditional promise is fulfilled, and it's ultimately going to find its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And I love that. And so that's why this is all important. So as we read tonight, as Solomon begins to prepare to build the temple, God is fulfilling his part of the deal, and it's all going as planned. It's all going as planned. And Solomon is 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 loving this. And, you know, there was never a time in Israel's history than this time, which I would call the golden era of Israel. Because there's no other time in Israel's history where they had peace on every side, when there, they didn't have enemies closing in on them. This 40-year period of Solomon's reign was so unique and God saw to it that it would be. The next time that we're going to see this kind of thing happening... It's a time period that's yet future to us in the millennial kingdom. It says that that they would be able to rest under their own fig tree and under their own olive tree. There'd be peace from their enemies, and there would just be this moment. Uh, there weren't any wars, and that time is coming yet for you and I, but also for the for the nation of Israel. And uh, I'm looking forward to that because Jesus will be sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. And while it won't be a perfect utopia, meaning there's still going to be squabbles, we, we hear in Revelation how Gog and Magog are going to rise up at the end of that thousand year reign, that's true, that's going to happen. But predominantly we're going to have a time of peace unlike any time we've ever known and it's going to be an extended peace and any uprisings will be dealt with specifically and surgically and immediately, there will be no uh, going through uh, some kind of process, Jesus will act. And the Bible says that he will rule with a rod of iron. That means when anything comes up, he's going to squash it. And it's going to be immediate. Rebellion will be held at bay for the for first time ever in the existence of our human existence, in our experience. And so God is fulfilling his end of the bargain. And he put on David's heart to the blueprint, if you will, of the temple and and God told David, and we 'll see this later that he wasn't to build the temple, but his son would, and david's heart was, well, if i can't build this temple because it was originally in his heart, that 's originally what he wanted to do out of just thanksgiving for how all the things that God had done, you know david was like lord i want to I want to build a house for your name." And the Lord loved David for that. But he says, David, you're a man of war. You can't build a house for me, but your son will. And so David's heart is, well, if I can't build the house, then I'm going to amass everything. I'm going to get everything ready for my son. So when he's ready, when he's about 20 years old and he sits on that throne, four years after he gets established, they're going to start building that temple and everything's going to be ready for him. The wood's going to be there, the gold, the silver, the bronze, the the, the stone, everything is going to be ready. And the plans are already in place. I'm sure the guys are already spreading these things out, looking at them. And Oholiab, and, um, you know, or some of these, uh, excuse me, I'm thinking back in the um, Old Testament, even further back in the Old Testament. But the real artisans, they're going to be looking at all this stuff. And when the time came, when the fullness of time came, it would come to be built. And it would be a great time in Israel. And so in chapter. Uh, last time we were together, we looked at Solomon's administration and how Solomon had such a, a great following and, and a great many people in his family and the people that he took care of that he supplied. He had governors over 12 different regions in Israel. Each one, every month, alternating, they would bring food to the king and his family, which was quite a bit of uh, a large number of people. And then it also spoke of Solomon's prosperity and his wisdom and how it says in verse 25 of chapter 4, and I love this, And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan as far as to Beersheba. So that speaks of the north all the way down to the south, all the days of Solomon. And I would encourage you to underline chapter uh, or verse 25 of chapter 4 because that's a significant verse. Because, again, you're not going to see that kind of thing happening again until the millennium when Israel will be restored. We will be restored. We will be in our new bodies, in a new Jerusalem. Or not not in a a new Jerusalem, not not the new Jerusalem. But um, there will be a millennial temple built, and we will serve the Lord in it. And, uh, And so, anyway, let's go ahead and look at Chapter 5. I'm going to read through it, and then we're going to go back and take a look at it. Excuse me. It says, Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon, because he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram had always loved David. And then Solomon sent to Hiram, saying, You know how my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God. You might want to underline that phrase, the Lord his God. And I'll explain why later the Lord his God, because of the wars which were fought against him on every side, until the Lord put his foes under the soles of his feet. But now, underline this, the Lord my God, underline that phrase, but now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side, Solomon says, and there is neither adversary, excuse me, nor evil occurrence. And and behold, I propose to build a house for the name of Underline this again, the Lord my God. As the Lord spoke to my father David, saying, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, he shall build the house for my name. Excuse me. Now, therefore, command that they cut down cedars for me from Lebanon, and my servants will be with your servants, and I will pay you wages for your servants according to whatever you say. For you know there is none among you, none among us, who has skill to cut timber like the Sidonians. And so it was when Hiram heard the words of Solomon that he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day. Blessed be Jehovah. That's literally what he said. Blessed be the Lord this day, for he has given David a wise son over this great people. And then Hiram sent to Solomon saying, I've considered the message which you sent to me and I will do all you desire concerning the cedar and the cypress logs. My servants shall bring them down from Lebanon to the sea. I will float them in rafts by sea to the place you indicate to me, and you will have them broken apart there. Then you can take them away, and you shall fulfill my desire by giving food for my household. And then Hiram gave Solomon cedar and cypress logs according to all his desire. And Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household, and 20... uh, And 20 cores of pressed oil. And thus Solomon gave to Hiram year by year. And so the Lord gave Solomon wisdom. And as he had promised him, and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon. And the two of them made a great treaty together. And then King Solomon raised up a labor force out of all Israel. And the labor force was 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month, in shifts. And there were one month. They were were one month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the labor force. So Solomon had seventy thousand who carried burdens and eighty thousand who quarried stone in the mountains. Beside three thousand three hundred from the chiefs of Solomon's deputies who supervised the work and supervised the people who labored in the work. Excuse me. And the king commanded them to quarry large stones, costly stones, and hewn stones to lay the foundation of the temple. And so Solomon's builders, Hiram's builders, and the Gebelites quarried them, and they prepared timber and stones to build the temple. And so this is a great, great project for many people to do. And, you know, back then they didn't have cranes and lifts and all of these fancy gizmos that we have now. You know, they had to do things the hard way. <laughs> and they had to chisel stone. And uh, just to see how they quarried stone and limestone is really something. They, they would often take these uh, huge slabs of, uh, of limestone and they would chisel. They would chisel a straight line where they wanted the crack to be and then they would take wood And they would wet the wood, and they would slide it in between at different points. And that that wood would um, expand as the water in it would cause it to expand. And what it would do is it would just crack that that limestone in a perfect way. And these guys were so good at it. They say that the temple, the 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 limestone was so done so well that you couldn't even put a you could put a piece of paper. You couldn't even put a piece of paper. In between and it would stop and, and for that kind of technology and for that kind of precision these men were good at what they did and God gave them wisdom and uh, all of these things and so it's really wonderful to see how when he wants to do something he gives men wisdom to do these things let's go back to verse one notice uh, Hiram king of Tyre He sent his servants to Solomon because he heard that they had anointed him king in the place of his father, for Hiram had always loved David. Now Hiram had this title, and his title was King of the Sidonians, and thus he was king over the area of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, From about the 12th to the 7th centuries BC, both of these cities, Tyre and Sidon, were, were governed together, and he governed them. And uh, Sidon was uh, much to the north of, uh, of uh, I'm sorry, Sidon was north, and Tyre was down on the, the, the southern part. And, and those two towns, if you remember, are located in what you and I would call modern-day Lebanon today. Um, Lebanon, yes. And, uh, and so uh, Tyre and, and, and Sidon in Lebanon. And so this is where Hiram Governed, and, and that's where the cedar trees were—the the best cedar trees in the world, and the cypress trees. They grew in abundance there; very healthy. They were world renowned for their kind of uh, this product of theirs. And so, we we would call that area Phoenicia, um, as well as modern day Lebanon. But Hiram also helped David during his reign when David first came into his kingdom. Remember. It tells us, and you, might, you can write this in the margin of your Bible if you want in, in verse 1. I'll be mentioning these scriptures, and I hope you do write them down because they'll, they'll give you a lot of insight and uh, history as, as we go along. But in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 11, Hiram, this king of Tyre and Sidon, he also did the same thing for David. Because these two men had such a great relationship. And I love the fact that Solomon, now coming into his reign... He keeps that relationship alive that his dad had 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 with Hiram. Because in 2 Samuel 5, verse 11, it says, Then Hiram, and this is back in the early part of David's reign, he said, Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. This was just Hiram's way of saying, hey, welcome. And what a great thing to have a neighbor like that, you know, they, you know, hopefully when, when new people come into your neighborhood, you know, it, it's an old thing that people used to do, but, you know, wouldn't it be nice for us to revive that again when you have a new neighbor come in? Most of the time in our neighborhoods, people don't even know who's, who's living there. Somebody moves up with a truck and then you never see them again. You know, they move in and you don't even see them come outside, but wouldn't it be great for us Christians to come over with a meal, come over with some cookies, a, a pie, a cake, and just say, hey, welcome to the neighborhood. My name is so-and-so, and you get to know them, you know. Wouldn't that be awesome to do? Think about that. Start doing that. Let's do it. Let's start, let's start here and do that. That would be awesome to do. But um, it reminds me of a proverb in chapter 16 of Proverbs, verse 7, one that we know very well. It says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Now, this doesn't mean that Hiram was an enemy of David, because he certainly wasn't. He was a friend. He was a friend, but he was also a Gentile king. And the Jews have never really had great dealings with Gentiles around them. Even today, all the Gentiles, most of them, want to destroy Israel. But to have a king like this, to be so friendly and so outgoing and just so willing to bless David and then to bless David's son, Solomon, is really remarkable. And I love that. I think, I think wouldn't the world be a better place if we did that? If other kings did that. So notice, then Solomon sent to Hiram saying, and this was probably sent either through a messenger or perhaps written down on some obstracon or some kind of substrate that they would use to write things down. Parchment, we don't really know. Or it could have been a, a messenger. But he, Solomon sends to Hiram and says, you know that how David my father could not build a house for my name or for the name of the Lord his God. Because of the wars which were fought against him on every side until the Lord put his foes under the soles of his feet. And notice he says, the Lord his God. If you haven't underlined that, underline it now because in verses 3, 4, and 5 you're going to see in verse 3 it said, the Lord his God. Verse 4, the Lord his God. And then finally the Lord, I'm sorry, excuse me. The Lord his God, speaking. David speaking of David's God But in verses 4 and 5, he says, But the Lord my God, and there's something significant about that. We'll get to that. But David, he was not allowed to build the house of God. Now, when we look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, as I referred to earlier, it's not complete, it doesn't mention everything that God had spoken to David. There is a portion of it there, but we have to go to Chronicles to find what else God had said, because that is the truth of what all God said. And let me read it to you. You might want to, again, write in your Bibles, 1 Chronicles 22, verses 6 through 10, because notice what God spoke to David. When God did speak to David during that time, Of this promise, he also spoke these things. And let me read them to you because you won't find them in 2 Samuel 7. You'll only find them here and in 1 Chronicles 28 3 through 7. You'll find it there as well. But let me just read it to you because it is important. Because it says, Then he called for his son Solomon, David did, and he charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, but the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have great wars and have made great wars. You shall not build a house for my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. And notice here, this is really interesting. Behold, a son shall be born to you yet, who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all of his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon. And so God tells him what his purpose is. He even gives him his name. God even called him Jedidiah, meaning beloved of the Lord. Another name that God gave to Solomon. Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all of his enemies all around. And his name shall be Solomon, for I will give peace and quietness to Israel. In his days, so that forty years would be un, unheard of, and he shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father. And notice, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever, forever. Some of those things God had already, God had told David that he, this is an everlasting thing. And so notice at the end of verse 3, it says, until the Lord put his foes under the soles of his feet. Now Solomon, now that David had passed away, remember David was a prolific writer of songs for Israel. We call them Psalms, but he wrote many of them. We have many of them in the Bible. He wrote, you know, I mean, there's 150 of them. He wrote the majority of them, but one of them was Psalm 110, and Solomon was very much aware of that psalm, of the promise in that psalm. And let me read it to you. It's a one that we know very well. Psalm 110, verse 1. It says, The Lord said to my Lord, the Lord, God, said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So as Solomon is, is mentioning this now. Here in verse three, until the Lord put his foes under the soles of his feet, he's referring to a psalm that his father had written, and he's referring to the promise that God had given to David and ultimately had given to Solomon as well. And even Paul in the New Testament, when he he was writing to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 22, let me read it to you, because at the end of this, he mentions, he recalls this same psalm. In verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Hallelujah. Right? That's what we're going to be celebrating on next Friday and then the following Sunday. For as we all died in Christ, we will all be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. He was the firstfruits of the resurrection. And then afterwards, those who are Christ at his coming and then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. When he puts an end to... Oh, I read that. I just want, Can I read it again? Um, when he puts an end to all rule and authority... That just sounds so good to me, doesn't it? It's sort of like... He, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. And here's the verse, verse 25. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And so even Paul the apostle, over a thousand years later, is referring to this same Psalm 110 verse 1 that Solomon is rehearsing and now talking to Hiram and saying, this is what God is going to do. Again, the promises of God are irrevocable. You can't You can't break that bond. When God makes a promise, it is as good as done. Many people have tried to thwart God's plan and to thwart his promises, and guess what? They lost, and he always wins. And I don't know about you, but that just puts a smile on my face. Not because people are not getting what they want. I mean, I don't want what I want. I don't even want all that I want because if God gave me everything I wanted, I would probably be a mess. So anyway... But notice, verse 4 now. But now the Lord my God, and I had you underline that for a reason because David says, when he's talking about his dad, the Lord his God, but now it becomes personal. It's no longer just my dad's God, it's my God now. But now the Lord my God, he has given me rest on every side and there is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. And I love this because in verse 5 he says the very same thing. But see, Solomon needed to have his own personal relationship with God, and he couldn't ride on the coattails of all the things that God did for his dad, for his father, David. He had to pave his own way. He had to to chart new territory. He couldn't just stay in that place of resting on dad's laurels or even his dad's reputation or even the promises that God had given to David He's like, no, no, these promises belong to me now, and and God is doing this, and he's doing it right now. He's doing it, and Solomon is completely blown away, and that's why when God loved him so much, and you remember when he was in Gibeon offering sacrifices there in abundance that very night, God spoke to him and said, Solomon, what do you want? You name it. I'll give it to you. You just name it. And you know, God wasn't twiddling his thumbs going, I hope he doesn't ask for that Bugatti because it hasn't even been invented yet. I hope he doesn't ask for all that stuff because, oh. God wasn't worried because you know why? God already had the man's heart. And so when God has a man's heart, he can promise him anything. And God's going to be blessed because that man's going to be blessed because the altar of his heart is a place where God sits. And when God sits on the altar of our hearts, we've got nothing to fear. And we've also got nothing that we need to worry about because there's no idol on our heart when God is on the throne of our hearts. So there was no idol at that time on, on Solomon's heart. The Lord was central in, in his life. What do you want, Solomon? Solomon said, I just need, "I'm I'm so young, Lord. I don't even know how to come out. I don't know how to go in. Everything is being provided for me. I've done nothing, and everything is here for me. I just need to know how to guide and how to judge rightly all these wonderful people of yours." Notice Solomon and all of his glory, and all of his pomp at this time. He wasn't full of himself. He was humbled. He said, I just need to know how to do the right thing, God. I want to do the right thing. This is so huge. This is way bigger. I'm way at the deep end of the pool, way at the deep end of the pool, God. And I understand that idea of being way at the deep end of the pool. And, you know, you don't, your water wings are, are you know, the air's coming out of the water wings and you're starting to flail. And, you know, I understand how that is. And that's where he was. And he says, I just need to know. And God says, great. Because I'm going to give you everything you need, Solomon. In fact, I'm going to give you so much more than you've ever asked. And because you didn't ask for the things that everybody else would have asked for, I'm going to give those to you as well in abundance. You're going to have wisdom coming out your ears. You're going to have gold coming out of your hands. It's going to be like, it's going to be like nothing to you. And I'm going to bless you. But Solomon needed to come to this personal relationship with God himself. He could not ride on the coattails of his dad. And see, that's why discipleship is so important in the church today. Because, you know, it doesn't appear to be recorded for us whether David really used this discipleship with his own sons, with the exception of perhaps Solomon, because God had a great plan for Solomon and David was behind it. He was... At the end of his life, he was like, I'm all in on this. I'm all in on this. And so maybe David finally, once, out of all of his sons, he really put all of his eggs in the basket for Solomon. And he's like, I want to every, do everything I can to make him prosperous, to make that, that promise from God come to fruition. I want him to be the best that there's ever been. And God says he is going to be the best There's going to be nobody like him before him or after him. Of course, ruling out Jesus, of course. But any physical human being, there's going to be nobody like him, and neither will there be anyone like him. Think about that. Even today, there's been nobody like Solomon except for Christ, his Savior. But discipleship is so important. David, or Solomon, excuse me, was no longer riding on the coattails of his dad. Now he's beginning to form this this personal relationship with God. But David was active in his life, more so than any of his other sons, and I believe that. And you know, when you look throughout the scripture, you see these wonderful pairs of disciplers. There always has to be somebody discipling and there has to be somebody willing to be discipled. And whenever those two ingredients exist, it is really wonderful. I see it in the church here too, and it's really beautiful to see. You know, always be in that place of being willing to be discipled and also be willing to disciple others. But that requires you to do two things, or at least one thing, to be willing to be discipled yourself, to be willing to be taught and to learn from somebody who has been in the game, who's been a Christian longer than you have been, has more experience in the things of God than you do, to have somebody, you know, to be willing to look up to somebody. Pastor Jeff still has a mentor. That's Pastor Bill Gallatin. That's his mentor. He's still being discipled, and yet he discipled me. He's discipled others. But that's the the program. That's the way it has to work. And I had to be willing to be discipled. I had to be willing to say, I really don't have it all together. I really don't know how to do certain things. And then for him to be willing to disciple me. Do you understand? It it works both ways. Because if, if he didn't want to disciple me, it would have been cut off right then. And even if I didn't want to be discipled, it would have been cut off right there. But when it's all happening at the same time, it's wonderful. You see it in Moses and Joshua. You see it in their relationship. You certainly see it in Samuel and David as Samuel being like a father figure to David, someone that David could trust in the most difficult time of his life. He was perhaps the only person other than Jonathan that David could trust when he was on the run from Saul. And what about Elijah and Elisha? The discipleship that was happening there and certainly the greatest disciple of all time, Jesus Christ and his disciples, how he was such a great discipler. He was willing to pour out everything to these men. And now they poured out, and then we are the beneficiaries of their discipleship. Do you see? And so we cannot stop. We must be willing to be discipled, and we must be willing to disciple. It's a a constant thing. It's like the... It's like the, the Sea of Galilee, you know, the water's coming in from Hermon and coming in to the, the Sea of Galilee, and the, Galilee is teeming with life, and that water has to continue going down south into the southern uh, areas of all those farms and stuff, and, and there, all the tributaries and all the water that's being siphoned off to, to help all those fields of grain and all these different plants and vegetables and fruit. It has to be that way. It's healthy to be a, to be discipled, but then be willing to be a disciple. Find somebody that you can disciple. I love what Paul said to the Corinthians. He says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. And the implications there is if I'm not, don't imitate me if I'm not imitating Christ. If I'm not walking the way Christ, then don't follow me. But by all means, if I am following him and doing the right things, then by all means, follow me. And see, that's what a discipler is. It's an apprentice. Somebody who's willing to be the master, and somebody has to be willing to be an apprentice, someone to draw alongside and to learn the tricks of the trade, to learn from someone. It's a good thing. I hope you love learning. I love to learn. And I'm always learning. It's a healthy thing. In Philippians, Paul even says, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk, as you also have us for a pattern. Notice what he says. You have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, because not everybody wants to follow Christ. But he says, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me, follow my example. And finally in Philippians 4, verse 8, he says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is any, anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And notice verse 9, The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me. These do. Notice that the things that you learned from me, that you've received from me, that you've heard and you saw in me, those four things. And now Solomon is coming into that same place. It's no longer the Lord his God, it's the Lord my God. I've been discipled, and now Solomon's going to be a great discipler as well. He's going to be one of the wisest men. People from all over the world are going to start coming to him. And see, discipleship in the church is, is so important for the church to continue to be effective, and we must not miss it, because otherwise we've got a whole bumper crop of young people who've got nothing, but we've got to be willing to share with them, and they've got to be willing to listen and is my life reflecting something? Is, my life, is there something about my life that somebody wants to follow me? I hope so. And if, if it isn't, then I have to ask the painful question quietly, privately to the Lord. Lord, what is it about me? Am I so busy with my, my, my earthly pursuits, with my hobbies, that I've got no time for anybody else? I've got no time for a young man who doesn't know how to hang a drywall? I, you know, who doesn't know how to cut a two-by-four and fit and frame a door? Or am I willing to have the job go a little slower because this young guy wants to learn a trade and he wants to learn how to do things? Am I willing for the job to go just a little bit longer because I'm investing? I'm investing in him. See, that's the kind of stuff, and, and, and not just physical things. I mean, investing spirit, the whole thing. There's so much we can do, but that is what it is. And being a parent and being a discipler, being a parent, and if we're all parents, for those of you who are parents, you are in the disciple business, discipleship business, whether we like it or not. It's just a question of how fruitful and how good am I at this. And it's never too late. It's never too late. Don't let the devil freak you out and say, well, you know, they're 15. They are soon will be out of the house. You might as well forget it now. No, you start tomorrow. You start tomorrow. But notice in verse 4 there, there is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. I love that. And what a blessed time. There was no other time, like I said, in Israel, Israel's history where they had that. And you might want to write down this reference next to that. And it's in Micah chapter 4. Verses 1 through 4, let me just read it to you because it's speaking of this time period that I'm telling you about in the millennial reign of Christ because Israel had not enjoyed what they're enjoying at this time as we look at Solomon's reign. They're not going to enjoy that again like that until then. But notice what it tells us in Micah, the prophet tells us. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days. And whenever you see the latter days, usually it's referring to yet days future to us, okay? Okay. When it comes to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, and it's going to happen. And it shall and, and shall be exalted above the hills, and the people shall flow into it. Many nations shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. And you, ought, you remember this from Isaiah Chapter 2. A nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. And I love that. And see, this is the time that Solomon, they're going to enjoy this 40. I would love to live during the time of Solomon, more so even than right now. <laughs> To live during that time, that 40 years, that golden age. Verse 5 says, And behold, I propose, and this is Solomon speaking to Hiram again in this letter or this message. And behold, I propose to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, notice that, as the Lord spoke to my father David, saying, Your son will, I will set on your throne, and, and he shall build a house for my name. And, um, and again, one of the takeaways uh, from this chapter is, again, just God being faithful to his promise. You can read, you might even want to write off into the um, side of your Bible there. Just check out 2 Samuel chapter 7, chapters 10 through 16, because that is the Davidic covenant. And that's what he's referring to here. He's talking about the promise. Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 10 through 16. We won't read it for now, uh, but we'll go on. And so now in verse 6, it says, Now therefore, command that they cut down cedars for me from Lebanon, and my servants will be your servants, and I will pay you wages for your servants according to whatever you say. And notice this, for the, You know that there is none among us who has the skill to cut timber like the Sidonians. These guys were the lumberjacks of lumberjacks. These guys were the guys who had that big saw, you know, one on each side, and they're sawing away and everything's imperfect, and they're even smiling while they're doing it, probably, you know, wearing those little overalls things and, you know, you know, doing this kind of thing. They were experts, and nobody did it like them. They were amazing. And I love the fact that Solomon, and all of his wisdom and even all of his riches and glory and authority, he has the thing, he has it within himself to say, you know what, Hiram, there's no one on the planet like your guys. And I love that. The Bible says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. That's exactly what he's doing. He's humbling himself in front of this Gentile king and saying, you know what? We've got a lot of things happening, but there's no one like you guys. And I love what the skills that you guys have. And we want to come and learn from you and we'll pay you well. And Hiram says, you know what? I love your father, and I love you as well. Come on up, and we're going to have a treaty together. And they did that. And, and, and Solomon continued to foster this relationship with Hiram. And you know, a truly wise man sees the gifts and the abilities of others, and he takes knowledge of it, and he gives credit where credit is due. And any great leader will seek out the very best among the people for the areas that he needs help in. And happy is the person. Happy is the person whom the leader employs, and what a blessing to be tapped for that office and to serve that leader in the country that you live. What a great joy that would be. Verse 7, So it was when Hiram heard the words of Solomon that he rejoiced greatly in heart and said, Blessed be Jehovah this day. He used the word Jehovah. Hiram was no stranger to this God of David and now the God of Solomon, the God of the Jews, the God of all creation, he was no stranger, and when I hear Hiram speaking like this, I often wonder, what was God doing in this man's heart, this Gentile? We don't really know, but I wonder what he was doing. Maybe Hiram's in heaven. You know, Wouldn't that be interesting? Verse 8, Then Hiram said to Solomon, saying, I've considered the message which you've sent to me, and I will do all that you desire, concerning the cedar and the cypress logs from Lebanon. Yes, from Lebanon. <laughs> My servant shall bring them down. From Lebanon to the sea, and this is the Mediterranean Sea, by the way, because Tyre and Sidon is right there on the coast of, of the Mediterranean. So what they would do, I will float them in rafts by sea, so he's going to put them on rafts by sea, and they're going to float them down the Mediterranean along the shoreline, and they're going to bring them right down, and we will see... Um, and, and then they'll be broken apart there and then you shall take them away and you shall fulfill my desire by giving food for my household and so this place where they would drop them off and it tells us in Second Chronicles chapter 2, verse 16 you might want to write that in the margin of your Bible because they float those logs from Tyre and Sidon up there in Lebanon and they float them down the Mediterranean coast and they stop right at Joppa today uh, it used to be called Jaffa like J-F-F-A, but it's modern-day Tel Aviv. That's where it is. And they would bring those logs down there, and at that point, they would break them apart, and they would have um, oxen and stuff like that, and they would travel along the roads. There's a a great road that goes all the way down to Jerusalem or up to Jerusalem, and so that's where they would bring them. They would get them around a modern-day Tel Aviv or Joppa, and they would bring those things right into into Jerusalem, and so then Hiram gave Solomon cedar and cypress logs, according to all his desire, and Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat of food for his household and 20 cores of pressed oil. Again, in Second Chronicles, it tells us that it was actually 20,000 baths of oil, and that's a liquid measure, but basically what it means is about somewhere between 115 to 120,000 gallons of olive oil every year. That's a lot of olive oil. You know, and can't you just see the, the linguini spread out nice and lean and then have that, uh, the olive oil and you cook the, the Italian sausage with that? Um, anyway. But this was basically a bartering agreement, wasn't it? They were bartering. You do this and I'll do that. And so finally, verse 12. So the Lord gave Solomon wisdom and as he had promised him, notice, And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty together. And King Solomon raised up a labor force out of all Israel, and the labor force was 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They were one month in Lebanon and two months at home, and Adoniram was in charge of this labor force. Now, these 30,000 men appeared to be Jews that were put into service for this Project again for a specific time. They weren't permanent laborers. They were laborers for a purpose, and then that purpose would end. And so, in fact, we this there may be this may be the beginning of the disgruntledness of some of these people because uh, you might want to make a note of uh, chapter twelve in this book, 1 Kings twelve verses 4 through 8, because we're going to see that they were getting frustrated at how Solomon was really driving these people to do all of this work, not only for the house of God, because that took seven and a half years, by the way, but then when Solomon built his own house, guess how long it took? Thirteen years. So all of his little building projects, so he kept the Jews busy. And they were getting a little crispy around the edges, and they were getting a little frustrated, but that wasn't all there was to it. But the Jews weren't supposed to be enslaved, if you will. I mean, it was a forced labor, but they did it, and hopefully they did it with a great heart, because, I mean, after all, they are building a temple. It's not like it's some vain, empty pursuit. But in Leviticus 25, verse 44 through 46, it talks about, as for your male and female slaves whom you may have from the nations that are around you, from them you may buy, um, you may buy male and female servants. Moreover, you, shall, you may buy the children of the strangers who dwell among you and their families who are with you, which they beget in your land, and they shall become your property. And you may take them as an inheritance for your, for your children after you to inherit them as a possession." They shall be your permanent slaves, but regarding your brethren, the children of Israel, you shall not rule over them with rigor. Okay, so they weren't to be in this forced labor. And so Solomon, verse 15, had 70,000 who carried burdens and 80,000 who quarried stone in the mountains. So besides 3,300 from the chief of Solomon's deputies, they supervised the people who labored uh, in the work, and so this other group of 170 or, or you know 70,000 and 80,000, these were actually people of the land, the Canaanites, if you will, the Gebelites, the people who were to um, do these things like cut stone and, and and cut wood and those kinds of things. And the king commanded them to quarry large stones, costly stones, and hewn stones to lay a foundation of the temple. And it's interesting that, you know, when you think of a building project and you have this kind of organization, this kind of manpower, it can be pretty noisy. But one of the things that God had them do was to quarry the stone, cut the stone, do all the work off-site in the quarries and away from the temple because when they brought all those materials together, it was silent as a mouse. And they put the temple, and they built the temple, and it was quiet. And I love the type of that, because what is God doing? The Bible tells us that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And what is this thing that God has done in us? When he came into your life, did he come into your life like a 100-pound gorilla coming upon you and shaking you like a leaf? No, it was very gentle, very quiet, very peaceable, very gentle, gentle and the same thing here as they're building the temple everything has been done off site now they're just bringing that stuff and all you can hear is the hoofs of the cattle as they're pulling those those wheels with the logs and the and those huge heavy limestone chunks that they're quarrying out of the quarry and they're bringing those things in but it was quiet so Solomon's builders, Hiram's builders, verse 18, and the Gebelites, they quarried them. They prepared the timber and the stones to build the temple. And the Gebelites, they were from a town uh, which we would call modern-day Bib- uh, Biblos. It's about 60 miles north of Tyre and about 20 miles northeast of Beirut. And so that's where these men had, had come from. And so I love this You know, as as Solomon begins to prepare, he's getting everything together and he's made these alliances with with Hiram and they have a great relationship. And and again, I I just I love the idea of Solomon's heart, you know, just in that place of, you know, this is not just my dad's God that we're doing this for. This is now my God. And that's why I had you underline in chapter three, four, or verses three, four, and five those those phrases. The Lord, his God, but now, verse 4, the Lord, my God. And verse 5, the Lord, my God. Solomon's taking ownership of this relationship. It's no longer just, I'm on the coattails of somebody else. He's like right in the midst of it. The promises of God are coming to a light, alive in his life. He knows it. He can see it. And God is doing things. And I, I tell you, what, what a wonderful life. What a wonderful thing. And you know, God is not different Today, as he was then. The Bible says that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. He cannot change. He will not. He refuses to change. He's immutable. He cannot change. And his attitude toward Solomon, his attitude toward everybody that we read is the same. And guess what? He loves you. And he wants you to say in your own heart, Lord, you're my God. Now you're my God. You're no longer my, my father's God, my grandfather's God, my great grand. No, you're, you are mine, and I am yours, and I belong to you. And you know, what a great thing for God to have people who have volitionally said to him, I am yours. What a great thing. What a gr- I mean, think about it. I mean, any king who has enough power can force people to do stuff. But it's not love. But to finally have somebody, uh, their heart to be in such a place, and I love this about God, he gets us to that place where we willingly surrender to him. And then we're so glad we did. And then we realize the great treasure, the great blessing that he has for our life that we could never have known had we not surrendered. And then when we finally do, we're like, How could I repay that? And God says, you don't have to pay me back. I'm just going to pour it out on you like a river. Will you just be willing to accept it? Will you be willing to be loved by God? That is such an awesome thing. So many people don't want to be loved by God. They just want to stay in their crusty, rotten old life. And they, they don't want God. They put these boundaries around themselves. I will not. I will not. I don't deserve it. Name your excuse. And that's all it is, by the way, is an excuse. Because no matter what you've done, there's nothing so horrible that you've done that God can't forgive. I don't care what it is. You could have been a serial killer. You could have been a, a robber who robbed many banks. You could have done many, many awful horrible horrible, horrible, despicable things and come to Christ. He says, I receive you and your life is changed forevermore. And see, isn't that what he's done for us? And see, that's why we come to the table. That's what makes this season so special because he died to preserve that for you and I, to preserve us, not only to cleanse us and give us this joy now, but to also have the hope of heaven and the the hope for the future. I tell you, there's nothing greater than that. Nothing greater than that. And you and I get to sit here tonight, and we get to listen to his word, and we get to take the communion, these elements, and then we are going to do that right now. We're going to take communion together. What a great time to do it, you know, just to remember what he did. Remember his death on the cross. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you recall... Paul speaking to them said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, and do this in remembrance of me. So let's do that. And it goes on, it says, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, the new covenant. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so, Lord, we do remember what you did, and we thank you for it, Lord. May we partake. And I love what Paul said, Finally. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, what is it that you do? What is it that we are doing? You proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. You proclaim his death. Yes, and his resurrection is very important too. We looked at that because without the resurrection, this death wouldn't mean anything. But when we take these elements, we remember that Jesus died for us. For a purpose. It wasn't just to to fulfill Scripture. No, he, he wanted to reconcile a people. He wanted to reconcile fallen man to himself again. But God's standard is holiness. And that means that the sin that souls shall surely die. And we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so I, you, we've all deserve death. And not only physical death, but we deserve a, a, a death that, that that goes on for an eternity. A, a, an eternal damnation. That's what I deserve. That's what you deserve. But this is what Jesus did on the cross to keep that from us from experiencing that horrible hell that that is. And God the Father made it so. But because his standard is complete perfection, there was only one who could fulfill that role. It couldn't be the most innocent person on the earth if there ever exists such a thing. It had to be. God himself, and that's why Jesus, the word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us for the sole purpose, the sole purpose, the only purpose was to go to that cross. He lived to die like a rose trampled on the ground. He lived to die to secure that place in heaven for you and I who believe in him through faith. And what greater thing is there than that? There's no greater thing. And so that's what we've done. We believe you, Lord. We believe you, Jesus, for all that you have done. Lord, we do proclaim your death until you come, but we also proclaim the resurrection, that you are also risen. And Lord, we don't want to take that for granted, although I know I do. Lord, I pray that you'd renew that sense of urgency within my own heart and with, within the hearts of my brothers and sisters here tonight too. renew that sense of, uh, of what you have done for us, Lord. May it never become something we become so comfortable with that we, it loses its, its immensity. Lord, renew our hearts and our minds and thank you again for just being with us tonight and thank you for your word, Lord, how it challenges us. Thank you for the promises, Lord, that you've given to us. Thank you for the promises you gave to David, the promises that you gave to Solomon, the promises, ultimately, that you gave to all of us. Lord, you said that when you ascended into heaven, that you would come in like manner. And Lord, we are awaiting for that day to come when you will come and there'll be the trump of God and then the dead in Christ will rise and they will receive a new body, and they will be with you. And then the, those who are of us who are alive and remain will be caught up in the twinkling of an eye. In, a, in, a, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed from this corruption, and we will put on incorruption. Lord, this mortal will put on immortality, and we will dwell in your presence forevermore. In a body that cannot die, that never gets sick, that never is remorseful, that never cries out of, out of pain and out of anguish. But Lord, any tears that come to our eyes, it's only gonna be out of gratitude and thanksgiving. And so we thank you for that, Lord. We pray that you bless us tonight. And we just thank you. And so, Lord, we just give you thanks and praise. Inhabit our praises now in Jesus' name. Let's all stand together for this last song.